David is one of the most compelling and loved characters in the Old Testament. In this series, we will look at the highs and lows of the shepherd boy who became king. He's both an example of faith and a cautionary tale about human brokenness. Ultimately, his life is a foreshadow of someone greater. In David, we see glimpses of what is to come. This series is about seeing Jesus through David so that we might see the King of Kings and True Shepherd even more clearly. Jesus, thank you that your love endures. And we just ask that you would uh, visit us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Welcome, everyone. It's good to have you with us. Um, I did raise my hand for Oppenheimer, not because I don't think Barbie isn't that good, but just because I haven't seen it. So I'm a bit behind, and I also will say I need to watch Oppenheimer again because I watched it at a venue similar to Alamo Drafthouse. And so when the, spoiler alert, when the nuclear explosion happens, I know, you had no idea what was happening. When the nuclear explosion happened, was happening, there was like three waiters kind of just like going by the aisles and just like completely took me out of the scene. Um, but anyways, all that to say, I need to rewatch Oppenheimer and then Barbie, and then I will come back to Ed with a final consensus. Um, but today we are wrapping up our series on David. We've done a quick overview of First and Second Samuel, and I think you can easily spend about eight months covering the whole thing, but we did the Fast Pass version. And if you've missed any of the previous talks, we do have them online um, on our website. And I kind of want to just take a brief second to summarize the books of First and Second Samuel. In simplest terms, David's story is about God raising the humble and humbling the proud. We started with humble Hannah, who was raised as an example of faith. And then proud Saul is rejected as king, and humble David takes his place and becomes king instead. And then when David becomes proud, God humbles him and still remains faithful to David and his descendants forever. It is a story about God redeeming imperfect people, a story of God siding with the lowly, a story of intimate friendship between God and a shepherd boy turned king. And last week, Ed spoke about David repenting and returning to God after his failure. David is then challenged by his son Absalom, who launches a coup against him, forcing David to flee for his life again, and only, he only returns only after Absalom's death. And that is where the book ends. So for more details on what happened afterwards, you can read First Chronicles. The chapters 21 through 24, the end of Second Samuel is an epilogue with other success and failures. And right in the middle, we get chapter 22, a song written by David. And so let's welcome up Jason. He's going to read Second Samuel. 22, 1 through 6, and we're going to skip ahead to 51.
Team Barbie. <laughs> David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent people you save me. I call to the Lord, who is worthy of praise, and have been saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled around me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Amen. Thank you, Jason. So up until this point, the narrator has been speaking, but now by chapter 22, we are hearing from David himself. And this is David's memoir. This is David's becoming. It is his version of a promised land. And it captures the essence of David's life. It is the thing he wants to be remembered by. It is the sum of his life. And in a sense, these are his final words that he's leaving behind for the next generation. These are his final words in the form of a song. It is a memoric poem. And yes, I did make up that word. But if I could sum up what he's saying in chapter 22, he's saying, God is my deliverer and he will deliver you. The author places this song at the end of the story, but it isn't a song that David crafted at the end of, its, uh, at the end of his life. It's a song that he's lived. And you can tell when you hear a song that someone's lived. The words they choose and the way they sing channels their experience. It's like their life bleeds through the song. For the five of us that listen to country music, when you hear My Maria by Brooks and Dunn, you feel the passion, you feel the excitement, you fall in love with Maria. And when you hear All Too Well, you feel the heartbreak, you relate to the loss, you sense the abandonment in her experience. And when the night falls, it doesn't matter how skilled you are at moving or who's around you, you just want to dance with somebody. Some of you guys caught that. But you can tell when a song channels a lived experience. The words David is singing is coming from his lived experience. These were moments in his life when he came face to face with the end. And the author tells us in 22 verse 1, he says, David sang to the Lord the words of the song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. 
And the word delivered can also be translated as save or saved. And among some Christians, this has meant a personal saving from the big bad world into a paradise far, far away when we die. But that's not what it's getting at. And it's not the meaning of save in the scriptures. Instead, it refers to God's intimate and practical intervention. The intervention that gets us out of a stormy situation. And if you've ever been caught in a literal storm, it's a bit frightening, isn't it? It's hard to see where you're going. You almost have no agency of your own. You feel stuck. It's hard to know when it will pass. And the same goes for stormy situations in our lives. I worked at the Ace in downtown LA for a while. And this was after I had graduated college and I was ready to enter my field, but instead I was caught up in a long storm. I felt called to work at a local church like this one. And at the time, there was nothing on the horizon. I, I doubted, I felt stuck. I wondered whether God knew what he was doing. I felt lost. I thought, did I just waste my time going after this thing? I felt like I had no control over my situation. And I remember going to work and praying, God, following you has got me to this place. I need you to get me out. And if, the, if my prayers were texts and emails, I would have done the like re- repeat notification you know, just over and over again and, and been like, God, hello, where are you? I'm stuck here. This sucks. But if you've ever been in that place, you know what it's like. And granted, David's storms were much more life-threatening than me making a latte at 5 a.m., but they show us a pattern for anything that we face. Looking at David's life again, we see that when he faced bears and lions in the, sh- in the shepherd fields, God saved him from them. When David faced Goliath on his own, God delivered him from the giant. When David faced Saul in the palace and in the wilderness, God protected him. When David faced the consequences of his sin, God saved David from ruining himself. And when David's family turned against him at the very end and forced him back into the wilderness, God protected David again. And so what's the pattern here? David gets into trouble and God delivers him. God is David's deliverer. So when he sings this song, when he pens this poem, his lived experience comes through. And it says to us that when we get in trouble, when we face messes, when storms come upon us, or when we cause the storm, God is faithful to deliver. God shows himself to be the ultimate deliverer, the one who intimately saves and protects. From lions and Saul's and personal failures, God demonstrates to us through David that he can save. And so let's look at how David speaks of it. This is verse 2 and 3, the first line of this memoric poem. It says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Now there's a lot of imagery here. 
But we'll just go with the first image. Rock and fortress are often paired together in the Psalms. And this is because cities were often built on the edge of cliffs or rocks. This was a defensive tactic that made it more difficult for opponents to climb the walls. And a fortress was a wall-like structure that was built around a city. We've got an illustration of what a fortress from the time looked like. That's it there. No, I did not draw that. I wish I had that skill. But this is a, a fortress from the time. And can you go to the next image? This is a, a fortress around Istanbul. This was built around the 4th and 5th century. And I think it's a testament to just how durable these things were. The walls were tall and averaged about 15 feet wide, making the Berlin Wall look like a sheet of paper compared to these. And the combination of, wall, of uh, rock and fortress meant that the structure was very tall. You could see it from wherever you were. You, it would make it difficult to get lost. You could, you, could find, you could always find your way back to the fortress. And so in reflecting on his experience and recalling the storms and messes, David can say, God has been like a fortress for me. Nothing has been able to get through him. I could never lose him. And these words weren't just for David, but they're for us as well. If you look at Psalm 18, you'll find this same song. And it's as if the biblical writers are inviting us to make these words our own. They're encouraging us to pray these words after David. They encourage us to pray for deliverance when we're in trouble. And so it poses a question for us. What do you need deliverance from? What do you need deliverance from? Deliverance isn't the once-in-a-lifetime saving act that gets us a ticket to heaven. It's the saving that we need in the day-to-day. It's the intimate saving and protection that God offers in the here and now. And we all need deliverance, don't we? Like David, we have external and internal opponents. Things that are working against us that we need to be delivered from. But I think if you were to ask the average Angelino this question, they may say something like, well, what do I need deliverance from? This person or that people group needs saving, not me. But the words of the song invite us to make it personal. And so let me just name a few things that I can think of when I think about this question. We need God to deliver us from the threat of mass shootings, don't we? And the effect that it has had on our minds. To save us from the lies that we've believed about God and about others. To deliver us from addictions that we may have, even the socially acceptable ones. To deliver those in this room from the ways the strike is affecting their livelihood. To save us from the dark influences that are hostile to God and to us, both spiritual and natural. Or we may feel that God needs to deliver somebody that we love from something that they're facing. 
Or maybe you're like me and you struggle with a pattern of thinking that nothing good can come to you. I found it hard to believe that my life could be as good as it once was at certain points. Anyone else think that their best days are behind them? Just me? But God has shown me again and again that he makes all things new. That he brings good things from bad. That he saves us from the trouble that we find ourselves in. That he delivers us from the negative things that we've believed about ourselves. And so what do you need deliverance from? I think looking at David's description is helpful to identify the things that we may be in need of deliverance from. Verse 5 and 6, it says, The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. Now, don't these sound like great names for roller coaster rides? The snare of death. The torrent of destruction definitely has a loop. You may get stuck at the top, but who knows? But the things that we need deliverance from are things that rob us of the life that God offers. The things that swirl around us, the things that overwhelm us, they coil against us like a snake. They confront us, they make us feel small, they dominate our lives. And the image of waves and waters here symbolize destruction, the unknown, trouble, or chaos. And the picture here is that David is up to his neck in water, in trouble, in a mess. And so how do we know we're in need of deliverance? Well, what are you up to your neck in? What waters and waves are threatening? And what do we do in that situation? We know what David did. He called out. David's made it his practice to trust. He's made it his practice to call out to the Lord. In verse 7, he sings, In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. And instead of acting, he calls out. Instead of taking situations into his own hands, like Ben spoke about a few weeks ago, he calls out to God. And I think too often we're quick to act and slow to call. Quick to move, but reluctant to pray. Passionate about getting stuff done, but reluctant to be in God's presence. When we're in distress, what is our knee-jerk reaction? Mine is apathy. My default is not to act. It's not to call out. It's to internalize. And too often when I internalize, it comes out in mean behavior, which I know is difficult for some of you to believe at times. But it comes out in ways that I regret. I can become cold and indifferent when I'm in distress. But those knee-jerk reactions are helpful because they reveal something about ourselves and they also remind us that we are human. But what's important is what we do after the initial reaction. Do we remain in our apathy? Do we remain in our internalized anger? Or do we make a practice of calling out to God? David models just how effective calling out to God is. And I am convinced 
that calling out to God in prayer does more than we can ever think or imagine. Does more than we can ever do in our own strength. Calling out to God can do more than we can do on our own. Here's what David says God did for him when he called out. Verse 20 says, He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. If trouble is the restricting of our souls, if death is the robbing of life, then deliverance is the broadening of our life. It is the restoring of our souls to freedom. Even if our situation may, have, may not have changed, we've changed. And we change when we grasp the truth that David believed, that God actually delights in you. In other words, God likes you. David believed God loved him with no strings attached. He believed in God's delight. And notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say that he rescued me because he expected something from me. It doesn't say he rescued me because I said and did the right things. It doesn't say he rescued me because I finally got my stuff together. I finally got my ducks in a row. But God delivers and saves because he delights in us. And so what if we believed in this? So that when someone asks, why is it that we go to church? Why is it that we go to four by four? Why is it that we go to these church things? We can say, because I believe God likes me. The song ends in verse 51 with a future promise. That God's love and delight will be upon David's descendants forever. It reads... He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And this sounds great, but the truth is that David's successors, those who came to the throne after David, majority of them, rejected God as Saul did. Instead of trusting in God, they trusted in David's. They put their trust elsewhere. They look to other nations to deliver them from the troubles, and the people didn't thrive as they did under David. And that is where Second Samuel ends. End scene. The original readers must have been like, what the hell happened? Things were going so well for us. Where, where did they go wrong? I think ultimately they put their trust in David's rather than in David's deliverer. They put their hope in themselves and in their kings. Because people put their hope in things that they can see, as we often do, don't we? The expectation of a king like David had its beginning during the exile periods. When kings failed them, when their enemies jumped them, when they had lost everything. And in the backdrop... It's in this backdrop that the prophets remind the people of God's promise to them through David. Isaiah talks about Israel being a tree cut down to a stump, symbolizing its end, its destruction when all seems lost, when the end seems permanent, but then Isaiah gets this vision. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, Jesse's David's dad, 
A shoot will come up from the stump of of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then Hosea continues with this promise. He says, similarly, the Israelites will remain many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stone, without a priestly vest or household divine images. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to the Lord's goodness in the latter days. Now, this is a hundred years. This is hundreds of years after David's death. How could the people seek David, their king? I mean, is the prophet hearing correctly? What does it mean that they'll seek King David again? Either David will be raised from the dead, or it's referring to a descendant of his. Which will it be? Matthew 1, 1 tells us plainly. Here's what Matthew says. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the one hoped for. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the one the prophets have been speaking of. Let me clarify this. Jesus is the son of David by adoption. Joseph is a descendant of David and welcomes Jesus as his own. He raises him up as his own. And adoption at the time was one of the most powerful legal processes that you can go through. Making it as if Jesus were a biological heir to the Davidic throne. And so Jesus is the son of God by conception and the son of David by adoption. David was the man after God's heart. Jesus was the embodiment of God's heart. But Jesus surpasses David. He is the son of David, but he doesn't rule as David ruled. Jesus rejected the nationalistic and militaristic ideas that were placed on the, on the ideal son of David. And instead, Jesus leads a kingdom not of violence, but one characterized not by oppressive rule, but by self-denying love. Selfless love is the marker of Jesus' kingdom. He delivers us from trouble into his love. He delivers us from self-hate into his love. He saves us from the things that people have done to us into his love that rebuilds us. And so we get a glimpse of that in David, but Jesus is the full revelation of it. And he stooped down to deliver us when everything seemed lost, when we were just a dead stump. Jesus comes to deliver. And often people ask, well, why couldn't couldn't God just do it with a snap of his fingers? Why couldn't he just say the word? And it is because to have done so would have been to limit God's nature. It would have, God would be limiting himself if he hadn't come down the way that he did. And let me explain it this way. Imagine with me, there are two separate people drifting in the ocean. One is in the Pacific, around Santa Monica, and the other is in the Atlantic, by Miami. And the one person in the Atlantic is rescued instantly by a machine. 
It plucks them up out of the water, leaves them on the ground, and moves on. The machine is programmed to pluck and drop and move on. And the person is grateful but carries on living the way that they did. But the person in the Pacific is spotted by locals and rescued. They jump in the water. They carry the woman on board. They give her a drink. They exchange names. They give her the clothes off of their backs. They look into her eyes and they say, don't be afraid. She's held tightly and for the long boat ride to shore, they tend to her. Now, which do you think had the more transformative experience? Does the person rescued by the machine return to it? No. Because it was programmed. There was no risk involved. There was no emotion. It had no agency of its own. But the person rescued by the locals returns. They become friends. She offers everything she has to the rescuers. Why? Because they put themselves in the water to get her out. They were driven with compassion. They chose to rescue her, and she was never the same. And so that is why Jesus arrived the way that he did. For God to, to have saved the world with a snap of his finger would be to limit the reach of his love. It would be a withholding of his loving presence. God needed to reveal his love because that is who he is. God can't help but jump in the water. He can't help but reach down, even if it means getting messy. Because he's compelled by love. He intimately and personally delivers because he is love. And he cannot limit the love that he has for you. I love what Athanasius says from the 4th century. He says this, he says, Jesus entered the world in a new way, stooping to our level in his love and self-revealing to us. Jesus stoops down to save. He doesn't snap his fingers from a distance. He gets up close and personal. He stoops down to each and every one of us and asks, what do you need deliverance from? This is where I end. If I can have the band come up. What do you need deliverance from? Jesus shows us that even the worst thing that can happen to us is not the end. Even when Jesus is swallowed up by death, we see that it's not the end. What's ahead for you is what Jesus experienced, and that is resurrection. Jesus goes before us and he shows that you and I have nothing to fear. Death itself isn't even worth fearing because he will raise us up with him. So let us not be afraid. Death is the worst thing that can happen to us. And Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome we do face a lot of things that feel like death, don't we? David's memoric poem invites us to call on the living God. And so what do you need deliverance from? What are you up to your neck in? Do you feel like a stump with nothing left? 
Is there someone that you need, is there someone you know, someone you love that is in need of God's saving power? David makes it his practice to call on the Lord. And so we're going to make space to call on the living God, and we're going to invite the Spirit to rebuild us. So if you can stand with me, we're going to sing a song.